It's lovely to see you, lovely to be with you at Bexley North this morning. Josh and Nikki are having a well-earned holiday, so you get the reserve grader today for your sermon. So uh, uh, for the benefit of those I haven't met, uh, I'm Phil. It's always wonderful. Every time I come to Bexley North, I meet people who I uh, haven't met before. I've only met a couple of times, so it's great. I was here a few weeks ago preaching on Romans 6, uh, but today... Uh, We're continuing on our series in Respectable Sins and Neglected Virtues. Uh, My daughter Sophie said that the uh, artwork for this looks like a gender reveal party. So if you, but, uh, and I was wearing a pink shirt last week at 6.30 church, it was like I was blending in with the artwork. But anyway, I don't often wear a pink shirt for those who, anyway. uh, So first week was our introduction on this series and uh, Josh Uh, would have helped you with that and then last week Josh looked at the first of these uh, sins and virtues we're thinking about thinking particularly about how we speak our our use of the tongue Uh, but before we get into uh, this week's topic there's one point I want to make and I made it in my introduction as I was preaching over at Carlton and uh, I really want to stress it uh, as we think about this topic of sin and virtue and uh, putting things on Uh, that please God and taking things off that don't please God, it's so important to remember that the starting point is God's grace. So I'm just going to stress this really, really strongly, to always remember the starting point is God's grace. Remember, we're not thinking about putting off sins and and putting on virtues to earn God's love or, or to earn God's forgiveness. We're thinking about these things because we have already been forgiven if we have come to trust in Jesus. Uh, so when we come to trust in Jesus, we, ha- we have been declared righteous. This is what we learned all through the book of Romans, isn't it? We have been washed clean of our sins. And now, as dearly loved children of God, as the new people God has saved us to be, now we try to put off sin and put on righteousness. So it's so important to get that order right. We, we don't do this to earn God's love. We do it because God has loved us and we know that love. And now as new people we seek to live for him. Interestingly, and sometimes people really struggle with this, I said it in a sermon a couple of weeks ago and someone came up and took me to task afterwards, Uh, a person who has not come to know Jesus cannot please God. A person who has not come to know Jesus cannot please God because you can make all the, you could listen to this sermon and make all the effort in the world to put off sin and, and put on virtues, but you will not meet God's standards. Uh, because actually we need to be washed clean, forgiven, we need a new heart uh, and only then can we live to please God. More than that, God is not pleased by our efforts to be good if we don't recognise him. God, God is not pleased by our efforts to be good if we don't say, and you are our Father who is owed all thanks and glory and we recognise that you've sent your Son for us. So please make sure you don't forget that as we uh, think on these topics today, on this one and then over the next couple of weeks, a couple more. The starting point is grace. But now, in this little series, we're thinking about five respectable sins and their corresponding neglected virtues, five areas of sin that perhaps we don't take as seriously as God's Word would have us take them, and five areas of godliness perhaps we don't treasure as much as God wants us to. Now, whatever areas we cover, like like sins of the tongue last week, they're all important, but today I am dealing with what I believe is the number one besetting sin of St George North Anglican Church. So I don't often claim to be a prophet, but on this I am claiming to be a prophet. Uh, And it's a massive call I'm making. Our number one 
besetting sin, and I'm talking from five-year-olds to 99-year-olds. I'm talking across all six of our congregations across St George North. I'm not just picking out Bexley North, don't worry. Uh, Now, if I did a survey of our whole parish, I'm sure, and asked, you know, what is the number one sin we struggle with? We'd come up with all sorts of sins. I'm sure you might be thinking, as I think that, yeah, that was the one Josh dealt with last week, sins of the tongue, or it might be a a judgmental spirit that we're going to think about in a couple of weeks' time. You you could be thinking of all sorts of sins. Chances are we will deal with some of them in in this series. Uh, And I think if you ask people outside the church, if you said, my minister has said he's going to talk about the number one besetting sin I think people outside the church would think we assume we'd be talking about sex and pornography because they think that's that's sort of what Christians are, are concerned about but no hands down by so far the others are not even in the ballpark the besetting sin of St George North including of its senior minister is greed and I I can say that with absolute certainty now at this point you might say are you saying St George North is a particularly greedy church Uh, I am not saying that. In fact, in my experience, ours is one of the most generous churches I'm aware of. Uh, Now, I believe this is our besetting sin because it is the sin of every church that I'm aware of in Sydney, frankly, in the Western world. Uh, And frankly, it's the sin of every Christian I meet in the Western world, including this one preaching to you. Uh, Because we just live in a world that is driven by greed. Our entire system is based on greed. Our world is driven by money and possessions. If you think about it, the greatest concern of any government, Labor, Liberal, I'm not commenting on politics, is that the economy might slow down. And when the economy slows down, what's the solution to it? Give everyone a cheque for $1,000 and tell us to go spend it on a television and make the economy work more again. You know, Our whole system is built on consuming uh, the way we just chase after more and more, even when we already have so much. I think if people from even 40 years ago came and looked at us now as a society, but I think if they, they came even into the church from 40 years ago, they would be horrified by just what we think we need and, and what we think we deserve. The way we, we obsess over real estate, Uh, The way we upgrade a device when we have a perfectly good working device already just because it's the next one. Uh, We we are part of a society and a system that has normalised greed. Uh, And so as Christians who live in this world, that greed shapes us. Uh, One of the things I am convinced of is that a problem we Christians have in so many areas of godliness is, is that we tend to use the world as our standard. We, we tend to use the world as our measuring stick. And so we just think, oh, we've got to be different to the world. And, and so I've just got to be maybe 20%. I make up every statistic I use. But 20%, we'll talk about the sin of lying. No, anyway. Um, 20% better than the world and then we'll be okay. Uh, then we'll be pleasing God. But our world is totally out of step with God. To, to be 20% better than the world, the illustration I use is, it's a bit like saying, I've got to get to Cape York... And then saying, I've got to Hornsby, I may as well stop. Yes, you're a little bit further north than where you were an hour ago, but but you're nowhere near the the destination. And I think that's the problem here. I fear that this is our, the modern Western Christian, this is our spiritual blind spot, far more than many other sins that get a lot of sermon time and a lot of attention. Having said that though, uh, it's not just our culture and our time, even if we have taken greed and normalized it like no other time in history now I think actually 
if you went 40 years ago, the Christians 40 years before them would have come and then the 40 years before them would have come and been horrible. I think it's just this thing, we just, we just progress like this and more than that, this is actually the sin of every generation. We just get better and better at it. See, if you think about it, right from the beginning, have you ever noticed just how much Jesus talked about money and possessions? Have you ever noticed how whenever Jesus wanted to make a point about true faith and true repentance, nearly always the illustration he would use is money and possession. So if you think back over the gospel, it's a useful exercise to do this week. Just go read one of Matthew, Mark, Luke or John, read through it. Just make a note of every time Jesus talked about money or, or, or possessions. See, when he wants to make that point, that's where he goes. So I think, you know, the story of Zacchaeus, the little guy that climbed the tree to hear Jesus. Jesus welcomes him in and then he says to him, but Zacchaeus, now go back and pay four times what you stole from people. Think of the story of the rich young ruler where, where he comes to you and says, I want to follow you, Jesus. Yes, I, I'll, I'll do anything for you. Jesus says, well, I'll tell you what, go and sell everything you own uh, and give it to the poor. Uh, you see, I could go on and on. The Sermon on the Mount is just nearly every parable. Nearly every story has something to do with money and possessions. The parable of the rich fool, the story of the lady with her last little coin at the temple. If you read the Gospels, Jesus often, time and time again, says what you do with your money and your possessions shows the reality of your faith and repentance. It shows the reality of the state of our heart. But despite the amount of the Bible devoted to it, greed, I think, seems to be one of those acceptable sins for Christians. And I think that's because greed is just really hard to define. You know how there's just some sins where it's either you're either doing it or you're not. So drunkenness, well, I can tell when you're drunk and I can say you're drunk and that's a sin. You know, uh, speaking harshly to a person, you might want to justify it, but in the end, you can tell when you've spoken harshly to a person. Uh, sexual sins, you, you know when you, you've fallen in that way. Greed is hard. It's really hard to define. And actually, the funny thing is we're much better at diagnosing it in other people than we are in ourselves. Uh, so, you I mean, one man's luxury is another man's necessity. How much money do I need? It's a really hard question. Have you ever thought about it? How much money do I need? I, I, you know, how big a house do I need? How many holidays should I take? And, and, and where should I go? What type of car do I need? They're not questions the Bible gives a yes or no answer to. It, it can't because greed is of the heart, which I'm just going to warn you now, this is going to be an incredibly unsatisfying sermon. Because I can't give you the... If people want answers, people want answers to questions because we're all Pharisees at heart. We just want to say, just tell me how much, Phil. And, and the Bible doesn't do that. You see, the Bible critiques our heart. But Jesus makes radical calls in this area on those who would follow him. And really, I just want to start us all thinking today. As I say, I'm not, I can't answer all the questions, but I want to get, at least start us thinking, what would it look like to not just be a bit better than our greedy world, what would it look like to actually take Jesus seriously in this area and seek to apply what he has to say? Which all goes to say, we need to think about greed, but I also want us to think about that corresponding virtue, which in this case is contentment and generosity. So let's get going. You'll need your outline to follow along as we're going to be jumping all over the Bible. Things should come up on the the screen as well. And the first thing uh, I want to say is it's really important to see that money and possessions are not evil in and of themselves. Uh, so let's start with the Bible's view of money and possessions. Some, sometimes Christians have misquoted the Bible and that reading we had before as saying money is the root of all evil. 
Uh, and so Christians have said we should withdraw from the world and take a, a vow of poverty. And some religious orders still do that. That started within a hundred years or so of, of the gospel first being preached. People in Egypt and around Palestine went off into the desert. The, the most extreme of them went and lived up on the top of a pole and withdrew from the world. Now, the irony of it was they were reliant on other people who had money coming and caring for them. But don't worry about hypocrisy and all, all that sort of thing. But Christians from the earliest time thought money is evil. We've got to withdraw from the world and have nothing to do with money. But the Bible actually has two prongs to its view on money and possessions. The first is God actually gives us this creation, including money and including possessions, to be enjoyed within the limits set by God's word. So look at 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. It'll come up on the screen. Uh, we'll go along there it is it says for everything created by God is good and nothing should be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving since it is sanctified by the word of God and by prayer so what you see there is the right attitude to God's creation is not to shun it not to withdraw like a monk into a monastery the, the right attitude is to give thanks to God for it to enjoy it but to do that within the limits that God's word sets for us. So it's not inherently wrong to own a house. It's not inherently wrong to go on a nice holiday or, or enjoy a nice meal. It's right to receive God's gifts with thanksgiving. That's the first prong. In my experience, about 5% of the people sitting here need that one stress to them. About 5% need that one stress because they're, they're actually worried about, oh, I don't think I should, you know, do anything with, with my money and, and so forth. I don't think most of us need to hear that side of coin anywhere near as loudly as the, the other side because I don't think most modern Christians have a great struggle enjoying God's good creation. In my experience, we're pretty good at that. We need the other prong, the other strand of the Bible's teaching, and that is that those good gifts from God and especially the gift of money, can very quickly become dangerous and lead us away from God. And this is just a massive theme of the Bible. So for instance, Jesus talking in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6 verse 20, he says, don't collect for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but collect for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. And then he goes on, he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I think that little verse, verse 21, is such a key to getting the right perspective on this topic. You see, what you spend your money on shows where your heart is and where your home is. Is it in heaven or is it firmly here on earth? But the other way around is in a way, by spending our money on things, our heart then follows as well. So you want to say that the money, where you spend the money shows your heart, but your heart follows the money as well. So Jesus says, no one can be a slave of two masters since either he will hate one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot be slaves of God and of money. I find it amazing how Jesus just throws out truth bombs. You know what I mean? Like when you're reading the Gospels, if you've got any sort of a soft heart, you, you, you get absolutely thrown by Jesus every chapter or so he'll throw out uh, an absolute bomb and we struggle with it and we say is that right and, and he speaks in such absolute terms but even if we struggle with what he says here we know his words are true aren't we we know deep down even while we 
hoard our, our possessions, we know in our heart, I can't take it with me when I die. Jesus is right. It does rust, it does perish, it does fade. And, and, and we even know, you know, even if I leave it to my children, it's probably, what are they going to do with it? You, you know, we know our houses, our holidays, our cars, our share portfolios, our bank accounts, we know they aren't really important. But we also know our hearts and we know how we're never satisfied. We know that often our desire is not for heavenly things, it's for a nicer house or the next iPhone or we know that all too often what we long for is not to be with our Lord, it's our next holiday or whatever it is we're looking for. And we know in our hearts Jesus is right about the two masters thing there, don't we? And we know we can't have two masters. But even so, we like to think maybe I'm the one person who can try. Maybe I can. Yes, Jesus is my Lord. Yes, heaven is my home, but I really like nice stuff. See, human sin is a really funny thing. What we do is we take wonderful good gifts of God's creation, the good things he's given us, we take them and instead of receiving them with thanksgiving, but sobriety, as in just enjoying them, but not clinging on to them, we let them consume us and we let them drive us to take God's place at the centre of our lives. That's what Paul means when he says this in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5. He says, For no one recognised this, every sexually immoral or impure or greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of the Messiah and of God. There's so much in that little verse Uh, Notice, first of all, how greed is seen as just as serious as sexual immorality and other sins like that. But the point I want us to really see is to be greedy is to be an idolater. It's a really important connection. To be greedy is to be an idolater. To be greedy is to deny Jesus, which really takes it to another level. See, idolatry in the Old Testament law is the worst of sins. To, To fail to worship God and instead give his honour and his glory to something made of stone or, or wood, uh, that is the worst of sins. It, it heads the Ten Commandments. The first two commandments are about it. And so Paul's point here is for many of us, our idols, the alternative gods we worship, are not little statues. They are money and wealth and real estate and experiences and, well, just stuff. Brian Rosner in his great little book, Beyond Greed. Has anyone read that book before? I've recommended it before here. Uh, A few people have read it. It's a great one worth getting. I checked and Matthias Media have them. You can get one delivered this week if you want to read some more out of this. It's a really helpful book. He picks up Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5, uh, and this is what Brian Rosner says. He says, The most disturbing thing about the fact that greed is idolatry is that hardly anybody owns up to being a worshipper. Imagine the response of disbelief in the local church if it were revealed that the vast majority of its members were secretly worshipping other gods. Yet if our analysis of the religion of money is right, the unthinkable may not be so far from the truth. It's worth thinking about, isn't it? Is it so normal? Is the worship of money so normal we don't even realise as we're doing it? Next passage I want us to see is 1 Timothy 6 that we read before. Here the Apostle Paul is warning how easy it is to replace God with money. Uh, And look at this passage with me. He says, But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, 
Some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Now, they are famous verses. And as I said before, people misquote those verses. They love to say money is the root of all evil. Now, it's the love of money that, that's the problem. And it's not all evil, it's all kinds of evil, because I think pride and lust do a pretty good job at being roots of evil as well. It's not just money. But don't let the fact that people overstate this verse take away from its power. The truth is he is warning us just how dangerous the love of money is. And we know this is true. See where it says there, it plunges people into ruin and destruction. If you have ever seen families fight over a will, you know this is true. You you know how once money enters the equation, fights happen and jealousy happens and other sins come out and, and selfishness and discord soon follow. But the warning Paul is giving us here is bigger than that. You see, more than anything, he's warning us that the desire to be rich, greed, doesn't just damage human relationships. It damages our relationship with God. More than any other thing, earthly treasures, the desire for wealth, the desire for security, more than any other thing, they lead people to wander away from their faith. And again, we know this is true, don't we? If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you have seen people who have got caught up in the pursuit of the things of the world and have wandered away from following Jesus. We know just in ourselves how easily we get distracted from trusting in Jesus by the lure of money and possessions and just the, the things of the world. People, people don't make a conscious decision to stop worshipping Jesus and switching to real estate or switching to holidays or, or whatever our idol is. It just slowly becomes the focus of our lives. The reality is, as our comfort levels rise, our zeal for serving Jesus fades. Our longing for heaven fades as we find our security in our money or our home or our career. Our joy and our contentment in the gospel gets replaced by a joy in our things and our experiences. As I say, very few people consciously decide to stop worshipping Jesus and set up a shrine to money. We just slide into it over time. Here's the thing though. I think every Christian here would say, Amen to everything I have said this morning. Even if we found it a little uncomfortable, I think every Christian here would say, Amen to everything I've said this morning. If you think about it, I've just been quoting the Bible for most of this talk so far, so, so I hope you would say Amen to it. We, we all agree that the love of money is dangerous. We all agree, we don't want to be greedy. We all remember what Jesus said, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. There's another story about money. We we all think, yes, the rich need to be really careful. Problem is, no one thinks they are rich. No one thinks they are greedy because there's always someone who has more than me and they're the rich ones. And as I said at the start, as Christians, we sometimes think we should just be less greedy and, and more generous than the rest of the world instead of making our comparison point the radical attitude of Jesus to money and to wealth. Brothers and sisters, the poorest amongst us, the poorest in our fellowship are very rich compared to most people in the world today and most people throughout history. We need to think about all sorts of things the Bible raises. Every talk in this series will will be relevant. 
But I do believe this is our struggle. This is our issue. I, I have not yet met a Christian who doesn't need to think harder on this one. So what is the answer to this problem of greed? Well, the Bible gives us a really simple answer. The opposite of greed is contentment and generosity. It's contentment in Christ that then shows itself in generosity. The remedy to greed is actually to find our security, to find our our meaning, to find our contentment in Jesus rather than in money and, and experiences and the things of this world. And that will then flow out in generosity. So we looked at Matthew 6 from the negative side before. Look at it again now on the positive side. Jesus said, don't collect for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But then he says, but collect for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus is saying, put your heart on heaven, not this world. Find your meaning in life in Jesus, not in your possessions. Find your security in Jesus, not in your house, not in your share portfolio, not in your superannuation nest egg. Find your contentment in Christ, not in your trips, not in your experiences. Recognize that what matters more than any of that is eternity. See, if we are people who've come to know Jesus, if we're people who've found forgiveness by trusting in Christ, if we're people who've accepted his gift of eternal life, we know what matters is our eternal home. We know I've only got maybe 80 years here on earth. I've already used up nearly 50 of them, you, you, you know. But I'm living for eternity in the kingdom of heaven. That's, that's where I want treasure. I don't want treasure just for this next 30 years or whatever God gifts me. I, I want treasure that lasts for all of eternity. Surely we want to accumulate wealth that we'll, we'll enjoy forever, not wealth that will be gone in 10, 20, 30, 50 years. See, if you believe this life is all there is, then just go and eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. But if you know Jesus and you know him as your Lord and Saviour, live for eternity. That's what he's saying in these verses. Trust God to provide, be content with what he provides and use what he's given you for things that matter. That will then work itself out in an attitude of contentment with much less than we generally think we need. So we looked at 1 Timothy 6 already this morning, but just before the warning against the rich that I focused on before, there's a wonderful encouragement towards contentment. He says, but godliness with contentment is a great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with these. See, that is godliness. Godliness is saying, I'm content with my needs being met and God is good. He does that rather than always chasing after my wants to be fulfilled. But you cannot manufacture contentment. If our heart is with Jesus in heaven, contentment flows. If our heart is focused on this world, we'll never be content because you'll never actually fill the hole. Now, the problem with this, of course, is what? As I said at the start, we all want some laws to follow. When's he going to get practical? When do I cross the line into greed? What is acceptable to spend on myself? We're all Pharisees at heart. We all think it's much easier if you just give us laws. Christianity is not about laws, unlike all other religions. 
You, you don't earn your way to heaven by these decisions. There's not a cutoff line. A Christian is someone who's been forgiven. And so for the Christian, it's not about what must I do and what mustn't I do. It's saying now, how can I best use what God has given me to live to please him? It's about attitude rather than obeying laws. Having said that, I think there are some decisions we make that are very, that are very hard to ever justify. When you go and buy the iPhone 126, when you have a perfectly good iPhone 125 in your hand, this is not my sin, so I don't, I, I've got no interest in an iPhone, but when you, when you go and buy a new phone because it's got a split screen and yours has a whatever, I don't even know what they are, you know what I'm talking about. Don't try and justify it, it it's greed. There are times where just greed is plain as day. When you have a perfectly good 86-inch TV on the wall and you think, I really want the 89-inch with OLED. I don't even know what that is. But, you, you know, <laughs> that is just greed. When you've got a perfectly good car that, that's done 12,000 kilometres, but then they bring out the new one. and you, It's just greed. Don't try and justify it that, oh, this one has better fuel. It, it's greed. Our, our consumer society is built on greed. But most often it's murkier than that, isn't it? And sometimes two people might make exactly the same decision and one is driven by greed and the other not driven by greed. And in that regard, as I keep saying, it's about attitudes. But that leads to the other virtue that is the remedy to greed, which is generosity. Now, I'm not going to focus much time here because this is what we're thinking about in our gospel teams this term. We're looking at that that great book on generosity. Our, Our gospel has been loving our studies in this book. I was preaching at the congregation where my gospel team is and I said we just did our first study on that and it was great and I looked down at all the members and I'm like <laughs> I thought well I led the study I thought it was good but <laughs> I hope you're more excited about them but the, the point I want to make here about generosity is being radically generous is both the sign of true contentment see if you're truly content you'll be generous if you're if you're not content you'll hoard but if you're content you'll be generous But more than that, by being generous, it teaches us true contentment. It's like a circle, sort of goes around. The way to combat greed and growing contentment is to actually be a bit more generous than you're comfortable with. So if you truly believe God is good and that everything we have comes from him, when we believe that, we won't be anxious, we'll be content with what we have and so we'll be free to be radically generous. The greedy person hoards the content person gives. But as I say, God also encourages us to be generous, to teach us contentment. That's why I think God wants us to give generously from the first fruits. You know, in the Bible, there's a common theme, actually set aside your generosity rather than give from your leftovers. That's not just so we don't run out of money. It's not just so that, oh, oh, I haven't got anything left to give. The reason we do that is to teach us a lesson. It's to say, Work out what generosity looks like and then trust God that he will provide. See, when we give from our leftovers, we're actually no better than a non-Christian supporting the Heart Society or the Royal Lifesavers or whatever it is you support. When we set aside a generous proportion to God before anything else, God teaches us to trust him. That's the encouragement of these great verses in 2 Corinthians 9. Look with me. They're famous verses. It says, remember this. The person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And the person who sows generously will also reap generously. 
Each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make every grace overflow to you, so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. See, sadly, those verses have been taken and uh, misapplied with, with what we call the prosperity gospel. I'm sure you've heard of the prosperity gospel. The idea that if you give, God will bless you abundantly with wealth. Isn't it sad that they've been misused in that way when actually they promise something far more wonderful? See, if we believe God is good and everything we have comes from Him and we sacrificially give, God does bless us. But He blesses us. Go back to the, next, the one before, Rob. He blesses us that generous reaping is not with more wealth and health and whatever else the, the false teachers offer. It's, it's, it's actually a content heart. We grow in, in contentment. We grow in godliness. We grow in joy when we think what I have given has been used for the good of the gospel. When we sow generously, it actually grows contentment in us because we see God is good. God provides even when we've been sacrificially generous. But I'm going to leave that more for our gospel team studies to explore. As we close, what do we need to do? in the light of this respectable sin and neglected virtue. I said at the start, I really wanted to just get us thinking today to start the ball rolling, but here's three quick-fire final thoughts. The first is, I just want to challenge us, we need to get serious about actually thanking God for how blessed we are. We need to just get serious about actually being thankful to God for how blessed we are. We need to stop thinking all we have is ours and see it for what it is, a blessing from God. We need to get serious about having an eternal perspective rather than being so caught up in this world. The reality is the things we idolise will burn away. Secondly, tied to that, we just need to question ourselves and our motives honestly and seriously in our use of money. Don't just roll along and follow the world in this area. We need to make sure that we allow ourselves to feel the tension of Jesus' teaching in our decisions about money. My biggest concern in myself is when I just make decisions about money and about possessions and about life that just look like my non-Christian neighbours and I don't even bat an eyelid. There's something worrying there. I want to say let's get serious about the reality of our sin of greed. Let's recognise our greed for what it is and repent of it. And I speak here not in judgement, I speak in solidarity as a, as a fellow sinner saved only by the grace of Jesus. See, I need to repent in this area and I think every one of us does to some degree. We need to seriously ask, you know, do I need this before we spend our money? Or do I just think I need this? What, what are my motives? Saving is a good thing. Prudence is a good thing. But do I really need to be that prudent? It's amazing how the line of prudence and greed can, can intersect easily. Is there a better use of my money? Why do I want this? Am I being generous with what God has given me or really am I just focused on what I want? There might be really good positive answers to those questions but if we're not questioning ourselves, if we're not feeling the tension of Jesus' words, I fear our hearts are hardened. My big point though and final point is this, thirdly, we just have to work at finding contentment where we're meant to find it. Our contentment should come from the gospel. See, actually, when people start chasing after the things of this world, it's sort of like a symptom of a deeper problem. 
And the problem is of a heart not captured by Jesus. You see, our contentment should come from the gospel and then it should come actually from our relationships that flow out of the gospel with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Too often we find our contentment and joy in the things of this world and so our joy in Christ fades. We need to be amazed by Christ. When that happens, we don't seek after the things of this world. I'm going to let the book of Proverbs be the last word from our first reading. Proverbs chapter 30 says this. It says, Two things I ask of you, O Lord, Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. And then it says, otherwise I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. That's the biblical wisdom on wealth. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Don't give me too much. Or I'm in danger of forgetting you, Lord. Don't give me too little so that I actually have to sin in other ways. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Shall we pray that God would give us hearts that reflect that wisdom? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word does not leave us unchanged, but instead it pokes and prods us. We thank you that Jesus so boldly challenges us whenever we read your word. And Father, we know in this area that in many ways we have followed a world that is more and more driven by greed and consumption and so father help us to seek to listen to your word in this area help us to ask those hard questions do we really need these things help us to seek to find our true contentment in christ help us to be radically generous giving from our first fruits but more than anything father we pray that we would not fall into the sin of idolatry, but instead we would see that it is you alone and your Son, our Lord Jesus, who deserves all of our worship. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I think someone's going to come and lead us in.